Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10? And our text this morning will be verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. The, the book of Hebrews, many commentators believe, was a, was a sermon originally that was written down and then sent to a, a group of Hebrews. And as we've seen over and over again, they were a group of Hebrews that were facing particular struggles of persecution. They were likely discouraged. They were scared. They were frightened of what was to come based upon what they had already faced. They were unsure of what level of persecution they would be encountering because they bore the name of Christ. And this letter is specifically written to encourage them to hold to Christ because of who Christ is. And mixed in between these reminders of who Christ is that the the author gives us over and over again comes intermixed in those, those wonderful declarations of Christ's person are warnings. And these warnings continually build upon one another. So after stating how, Christ, how great Christ is, Christ is superior to all things, the author says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then the author goes on to tell us how great Christ is, that in Christ we can take comfort, in Christ we are secure And then he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But remember Christ and remember how Christ has saved you, how Christ has bought you, how Christ intercedes on your behalf. But let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so remember Christ and remember the greatness of Christ and how Christ has bought you by His shed blood. So let us therefore strive for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore those who have fallen away again to repentance. So remember Christ And cling to Christ who intercedes on your behalf and is our great high priest and the one that stands on our behalf now. Each of these warnings comes in in increasing severity. Each one of these warnings that come begin to shake us as we read these and as as these Hebrews would have heard them read to them for the first time or have heard the, the actual sermon. It's increasing in the severity and making the soul tremble. Which leads us to the likely, I think, the most explicit of the warnings, especially in terms of the consequences. And so let us hear the full weight of God's Word this morning in this fourth warning, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of God. And I trust that we have felt the full weight of God's word as we hear it read. This section can be divided up into just a simple argument or a propositional truth, if you will, followed by an example, a lesser example moving to the greater And this first propositional truth is this. It's very simply, if you reject the gospel, if you reject the mercies and the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will experience God's eternal judgment. That's the simple truth that is stated beginning in verse 26. And I want you to notice how it's connected to what was previously said. It's connected by the word for. And this connects us back to what we were given in the previous exhortations. There's a consequence in light of not taking heed to God's word in these exhortations that were given. And not holding to these exhortations that were given is tantamount to rejection of the gospel. And so what we have to see is the connection. The warning that is given to us in verses 26 through 30 is connected directly to the exhortations given to us in verses 22 through 25. Now they began with three exhortations, and they each begin with the words, let us, let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is telling us, let us persevere. If we can just boil it down into a summary statement, those first two exhortations are, let us persevere in the faith. Let us continue to run the race, as Paul writes elsewhere. And then the final exhortation, beginning in verse 24, tells us how it is that we persevere in the faith. And that is the means that God uses, and I think it's important that we hear it, is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That is the means that God uses for our perseverance, and we shortchange that in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And as we made the point last week, the first step to apostasy is to pull oneself outside of the local church. That's the first step of apostasy. That's the first step of rejecting the gospel is to come into the church and then depart from it. And this was beginning to emerge in the book of Hebrews as people were beginning to pull away from the church. And so he tells us that we must persevere. We must hold to Christ. 
And the way that we do that is through, actually, the fellowship of the local church. You just think for a second how the Christian life begins. I think Acts chapter 2 describes it so well. And I just want to read this for, to you. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So you see this connection of those, these hear the preaching of the word of God, they're baptized, and now they're part of the local church. And what happens as a result of that is, it tells us in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, they dedicated themselves and upon receiving Christ, uh, the entrance into the, the church is by baptism, and now they're, they're part of this local church. That's how, that's how the beginning of the Christian life looks. That gives us an example of what it should look like. And many here in the, in the book of Hebrews are beginning to depart from that. And so the warning is here, is that as you're beginning to reject that, that's your first step to rejecting Christ. And we have to understand something about this, is that rejecting the gospel or the profession of faith comes by rejecting those things that come with it. That might be a hard truth to hear. But Christ is Lord. Christ is sovereign God. He is the head of His church. Christ says, those who love me will keep my commandments. And so to hear God's word as the danger that is stated here, to hear these exhortations and then, and then just simply reject them, we're told in the text, in verse 26, this is to go on sinning deliberately. The Old Testament calls this sins of a high hand. The Old Testament refers to these as intentional sins versus the unintentional sins. It's from a heart that is predisposed and accustomed to sin that it's so, it just quickly rushes into sin whenever it, an opportunity arises. Jeremiah describes it this way, everyone turns his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. In other words, when sin presents itself before you, you just jump in full head with it. William Gouge, the Puritan, says what we should understand of this going on sin, sinning deliberately is this. It shows that the mind is set on sin. Yes, set against God and against His holy will. That's a sin of deliberate, see, a deliberate sin. It's speaking of a disposition of heart. It is speaking of one that sins and doesn't, doesn't have any conviction of what he's doing, but just simply goes into it without a care. Now the warning is to those that at some point have professed Christ. They've professed Christ. They've heard the gospel. And they said, yes, we like that. But then they begin to slip, or they begin to, as he says in earlier chapters, they begin to, they begin to drift away. And now what he's warning against is a hardened heart that deliberately is rejecting God's word. Let that sit in for a moment. Sin's that are deliberate sins, is speaking of a condition of the heart. 
Now, he's not making judgment on them. Notice what he says. For if we, he includes himself in this, and in verse 19, which begins this whole exhortation section, he calls them brothers. So he's not telling them that they're out of the kingdom. He doesn't doesn't know that. He's actually indicating that they've professed Christ and he's, he's assuming that. He's not c- casting that judgment on them. And, and he actually includes himself on, in this, which is to give encouragement as he exhorts them. But it's also fears that there is no respecter of persons in this matter. You can imagine Paul saying this, if we go on sin deliberately... He encourages them with this. And the sin of this deliberate sin, notice how it comes about. It's after, according to verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of truth. So they have heard the gospel. They have embraced the gospel. They they have at some point accepted it as true. But at this point, there's many in the congregation that do not hold fast to the confession of our hope. And this is why he tells them, hold fast to the confession of our hope. And so we we have to make a few distinctions here. I don't think this is speaking of this danger is speaking of mere backsliding. I don't think this is speaking of a season where someone's going through a low period of life. You, you, this is not speaking of Christian and hopeful as they're walking towards the celestial city and they get off course. This is talking about Mr. Ignorant that's following them, who's not welcomed in, but cast aside. This is not just simply... A mess up. This is speaking of an outright rejection of the gospel. And, and it's evidenced through this idea of deliberately sinning. In other words, there, there was either no, no change in these that, 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 that are being warned, or, or perhaps they sprung up, as Christ says, as a seed, but only to be choked out by the weeds or to be scorched by the sun. It's speaking of apostasy. That is walking away from the faith. That is rejecting that which was once received. And and you can understand why. They're they're facing the difficulty of being a Christian in an intolerant society, and it's becoming too difficult to say, yes, I belong to Christ, when your neighbor's looking at you thinking you're one of those Christians. They're facing harassment, They're facing the threat of physical persecution. And so many are beginning to walk away from Christ. And it starts with that first step of walking away from the church of Christ. You see, here's a a reality we have to face. Is you cannot say, I love Jesus, but hate that which he died for. You cannot say, I love Christ, but then show disdain that which He is the head over, which is the church. And so He warns them, if you take this path, He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the meaning is that they've been arguing all the way from the beginning is how Christ is greater than the Old Covenant. 
And the meaning is, is that if you look back to the law for comfort, if you look back to a sacrifice for comfort, if you look back to that old system, I got news for you, it's been abolished. It's gone. It's been done away with. So there's no sacrifice that you have to look forward to. Let me just put that in our context because we're not standing in the shadow of the temple where there's sacrifices taking place as they were. But if we walk away from Christ and we, in effect, stiff-arm Christ and His grace and His gospel after we have said we have received it, there's no work you can do. There's nothing that you can do in your own power to make you right with God. There remains nothing left for you to do except a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what he tells us. If we begin to look back upon our lives after rejecting the gospel and say, I'll work this out on my own, all that we have to expect in the future is that of judgment. What does that expectation mean? John Owen makes this fascinating remark. He says, it's a frame of mind with respect unto anything that is future good or bad. He goes on to say, which we have reason and grounds to think will come unto us or befall us. In other words, it's looking forward to something good or bad that we expect. He goes on to say, in description of those who fall away from the faith, that the idea of judgment will actually enter their minds at certain points. That it never escapes them. And I think he's on to something, and I think he's right, because what it says is that they have already received the truth of the gospel. They've received the knowledge of truth. So this is a group of people that have heard the gospel. And if they have heard the gospel, they, they have heard the consequences of rejecting the gospel. They have heard why the gospel is literally good news because of the bad news of the fallenness of man and we stand under God's just wrath. And that because of Christ, the good news, we can be considered just. And so you can just think about what Owen's point was. There's this unsettling thought that comes to their mind, those that begin to walk away. What if there is judgment coming? What if it was right? What if what we heard Paul teaching? What if what we read in this letter is true? You see, those that have heard the gospel have to and then reject it, have to contend with the realities of the bad news, and it never escapes their mind. So the, there's an expectation of judgment. And look what that judgment looks like. God does not mince words in telling us what that judgment looks like. It's a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A fury of fire... 
is a dreadful idea. It's a fearful reality. And this, this actually comes from Isaiah 26 in verse 11 where it says, Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. That word consume is the figurative use of the word that we use for eat. It's being used here in a figurative manner. It means to destroy all traces of an object, that idea of consumption. Jesus describes it this way, this idea of consume, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 47, and if, where he says, excuse me, in verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And he describes it, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And, and fire consumes whatever is in its path. But this idea here of consumption is not annihilation where it just ceases to exist. It's speaking of an ongoing destruction that is unrelenting. It, it leaves behind the being of that which it devours and it consumes all comfort. It consumes all comfort that can be experienced or any goodness or grace that can be experienced. It's consumed for all of unending time and there's a certainty of it because you'll notice the words will. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, this is not just a hypothetical But this is a reality and a harsh reality of God's justice that fire will consume, in fact, perfectly, for unending time, his adversaries. Now many have rejected the idea of an eternal torment. Many have rejected that, thinking of this, that's just not right. That's unjust. Many will say... That punishment does not fit the crime. Further, they speak of it as being out of character for God that's supposed to be love itself. You know, when we think about wrath, and this is describing God's wrath, the fury, a fire, when we think of wrath, it's not necessarily an attribute. It's technically not an attribute of God. But rather, His wrath is the manifestation of His holiness. It's a manifestation of His righteousness. It's a manifestation of His love. It's a manifestation of His love for His own glory. If we affirm those wonderful truths... That God is holy, that God is love, and God's not in parts, He's not part holy, He's not part love, but but God is love, God is righteous, God is these things. If If we affirm those wonderful truths of the character of God, then we have to affirm the consequences of violating one that is holy who cannot tolerate anything less than a perfection of holiness. And if he does, then that's a slight on his character as being a just God. He then ceases to be a just God if he's not also a wrathful God. 
And we have to let that hit, hit us. We have to deal with the consequences of His holiness and His justice. And so we have to grapple with what God tells us and not mince words, but actually embrace it as a glorious truth of our God. That our God who is holy will manifest justice. Malachi says this in chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Think of that word, consume. But the author doesn't stop there of this idea of the fury of fire that will consume. Notice who's targeted. It's his adversaries. That's who will face the judgment of God, is his adversaries. And this is a a key to the text, actually, to understanding it. An adversary is one that shows hostility towards God. It's one that, that hates God. And what we have to understand and what we must understand is that all of mankind is considered an enemy and hostile towards God until His grace sets us apart. Romans chapter 5, verse 11 specifically says that Christ died for you when you were what? Still an enemy. Ephesians tells us that we are uh, walking in as sons of disobedience, following after the powers and principalities of the air. Jesus tells those that are unregenerate that their father is the devil. And so what we see here is this fire of fury that will consume. It's the adversaries, those who do not and who have rejected Christ. And so let me just speak very candidly, because the text is a candid text. If you're not in Christ, you, if you have not by grace through faith been saved, you're not a friend of God. You're not a child of God by adoption through the shed blood of Christ. But God counts you as an enemy. God counts you as an adversary. And what your expectation of what you will face is the fury of God's fire that will consume you for unending time. You will be deprived of all grace, all goodness, all comfort, and your life will be that of unending life of torment. That's what we face if we reject Christ. A fire that will consume us. Now, while we cannot know with certainty the persecution that these Hebrews were facing... We know they were facing it. The text makes it clear that they had already faced some sort of persecution. And that they're likely to face more. Commentators debate of how much persecution they had faced and how much they will. But they were facing persecution. We're we're not facing violent persecution. We're we're not facing what our, our brothers and sisters in North Korea face every day. We're not facing what brothers and sisters in Iran face. We're not, we're not facing that. But we are actually finding an increasing intolerance towards Christ in our society. That's just a fact. And historically, 
that intolerance is usually what precedes true persecution. Whether it's through physical violence, through unlawful legislation, or through suppression of Christians by way of financial hardship. Intolerance towards Christ is where it begins. And historically, it just leads to a, to a ramping up of affliction to the, to the church. So, while I'm no prophet, it seems that very well we could be facing in the near future a testing. It's already seen that it's not popular to be part of a church in our society that teaches according to the authority of God's Word and the Lordship of Christ. If you have a certain sexual ethic according to God's Word, society has already marked you apart as a bigot. That's just the reality. So we could be coming towards a testing in our own time. But actually we should see it as a refining that that Christ will be refining His church. And so what a reminder for us. Before we face that, if in fact we do face something of that, what a reminder for us. Let this be a warning that braces us that those that fall away will face judgment. Now, to make this point, to prove the point, the author makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He gives a lesser example and says, see how God has done it in this way? He will even more so do it because of this, because of Christ. And so he begins in verse 28 and says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so the whole point is is that there was this temporal death for breaking God's law. Mercy was withheld for those that would would blaspheme the name of God. And when you see that phrase that they set it aside, it doesn't mean that they they accidentally mixed their, their clothing materials or something like that, or they planted two seeds in the wrong field. It's talking about an intentional rejection of God, a blaspheming of God that would result in death. And Deuteronomy tells us this and in Deuteronomy 13, 8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. In other words, in cases of blasphemy and certain laws, if God's people had rejected the authority of God's word in their life, in Israel the author is saying, under Moses they would be put to death, and as we see, it's without mercy. It was without mercy that they would be put to death. And so if God would do that with His old covenant people, with this law that's tied to them, intricately tied to them being able to live in a land and to to have fruitful crops and have fruitful rooms, if, if it was in that situation, how much more will God bring punishment to those who reject His Son? So the lesser argument is, if God does this with Moses' law, how much more will he do it with his son? And you see that begin to unfold in verse 29. The greater example, he, he, he simply asks, how much worse punishment? 
And this is the answer to how much greater our punishment should be. By saying, how much worse. Now that punishment is according to what is deserved. In other words, there's no one that faces God's judgment that didn't deserve it. So rejection of the gospel will be deserved. A rejection of God's grace will be earned. The wages of sin is death. That's what they have earned. You see, we have to recognize there is no one that has been judged by God that was innocent. A rejection of the gospel by those that have heard it is what is described here. And it describes what they do. How much worse of a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, look look at the language, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, it's it's fascinating. They don't use Jesus' name. They don't say trampled underfoot Jesus. But he uses the, the title, the Son of God. Which is, which is bringing out the significance and weight of this particular sin. It's to show us the shocking nature of the rejection of rejecting Christ. The idea of the Son of God is to bring out the deity. That the one that is God-man is the one that is rejected. Someone that hears the gospel... That says, yes, I I like that, but then rejects it. Paul has said elsewhere, they are crucifying once again the Son of God. He says they are holding him up to contempt. And here he says they are trampling him underfoot. Listen, there is no benign rejection of Jesus. There's no innocent turning away from Christ. There's no way that someone can reject Christ and say, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I went and lived the life of a murderer or something. I just rejected Jesus. No, we see that it is of the greatest eternal weight to reject Christ. Just imagine for a second, receiving the most wonderful gift just one day out of the blue. And the gift that you receive is is beyond valuable. You you could never even dream of affording it. And it, it came at great cost to the person that gave it. And you receive it with with joy that you receive this, this valuable gift. But then a couple of weeks go by and you throw it away because it just wasn't working for you any longer. How foolish would that be? You know, but even that idea there infinitely falls short of what God has given us in His Son. To reject the Son who came and bore flesh and bore the weight of sin and then to just reject it? To cast it aside as if it's nothing? is to trample underfoot the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He goes on, though. He says that to do so has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, this, this phrase is a complex phrase. And what is meant by this phrase? Has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, it's describing those that have turned away. But what makes this, this text so difficult here to understand exactly what it's saying is typically and largely when a person is described as being sanctified in Scripture, it speaks of them being saved. That, that's to make a distinction from sanctification, the ongoing work of Christ in our life, but rather sanctified is that positionally being set apart by God. So many would look at this and say, well, then, well, you, you could lose then your salvation. You could be sanctified and then not sanctified. There's a couple of things that we have to wrestle with when we're interpreting this, and that's first, because we, we understand that the new covenant and those that are in the new covenant, the text of God's word explicitly says they will know me, that they have forgiveness of sins. That's the promise of the new covenant. The first mistake that people make in reading Hebrews is to assume it is written to those that are in the New Covenant. What do I mean by that? The author doesn't know who's in the New Covenant. Only God knows that. He's writing to those who have confessed Christ. Those who have entered into the church by confession and followed through with baptism. Further, that phrase, he was sanctified, there's various ways to look at it. One is this, as it can be translated as this way. It was sanctified, referring to the blood of Christ, which sanctifies the new covenant, which was already argued in the previous chapter, in chapter 9. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Him without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So if that is interpretation is incorrect, it's not speaking of a, one that, a person that has been sanctified, speaking of the covenant that was sanctified by the blood of Christ. The great Puritan John Owen said that the he is actually to be interpreted as being Christ, that, that Christ was sanctified. Some people say, well, well, hold on, why would Christ be sanctified? Christ was perfect. But you'll also notice in Hebrews several times it says that Christ was perfected, and we know that eternally Christ is perfect. So that's talking about his role as a priest. However we understand the text, the text is either speaking about profaning the blood of Christ through false confession and by visibly joining the church and then rejecting that, and that's why they're considered sanctified. When you join the church, you're set apart for no longer uh, uh, uncommon use, but now for holy use. And then so it's rejecting that. Or the idea of being sanctified is referring to those that were considered holy by that false profession. 
Whatever interpretation of it means, we come to the same conclusion. This is not speaking of a loss of salvation. This is not speaking of those that were part of the new covenant. This is speaking of those that have made an outward profession of Christ, have demonstrated it through their baptism, which is seen in the previous verses, that they come now into the church, they're visibly part of the church, they're, they're, they're part of the makeup of the church, but they, they actually... Do not possess the faith. They professed it, but have not possessed it. And it begins to emerge and show itself in the fact that they pull away from the body. He goes on to say, they have outraged the spirit of grace. And this fits the interpretation of Jesus' words. All sins in, in heaven and earth will be forgiven except for that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, in this, if we begin to think, this sounds like a lot like you almost could earn your salvation. Or you could even do things to hold your salvation. I think actually when we begin to go straight to that, we ignore the wonderful powerful transformation of the Spirit of God and regeneration of the human soul. That there is an actual transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. As Paul tells us, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a work of God. And it is so gloriously transformative that the Christian will persevere. And the one that's not bearing fruit is only evidencing the fact that that glorious transformation of regeneration never took place. And so the danger is clear. Those that profess the faith but do not possess the faith are awaiting judgment. And he he goes on to summarize this He quotes Deuteronomy in in verse 30. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Now this comes from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. We won't turn there, but let me summarize the Song of Moses. it's, It's the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 32. It describes God's faithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness, and his resultant judgment upon an unfaithful Israel. And what is striking here is that in the promise in Moses' song, it was a promise to Israel to take vengeance upon Israel's uh, enemies. And so it was an encouraging song for God to say, if your enemies come against you, I will take vengeance upon them. But notice how in the New Testament it interprets it. It applies that to those who confess the faith, but apostatized, the Lord will exercise His vengeance upon them. It is a promise of God's vengeance. So think of it this way. If God would avenge His people Israel, how much more will He avenge the blood of His Son? How much more will he count the blood of his son to be the most valuable 
something that cannot be weighed in weight. And he says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is no escape. There is no escape from God. We can't go off and hide from God in some corner. We can't just simply reject Him in our hearts and walk away and act like if there's no consequence. This is a sobering and heavy passage. This strikes fear into the heart of all that hear it. So why does God give us these warnings? To direct our eyes to Christ. So that we would set our eyes upon Christ. That we would go out to Christ with our hands empty. You see, all of our works leave us in despair. But Christ... But Christ and His grace. You know, the confession teaches us by God's grace we tremble at the threatenings. Why do we tremble at the threatenings? To remind us of His grace. And let me just say this to you. If we were unbothered by these texts, I would be concerned for the soul of the person that's unbothered by these Actually, the threatenings are a work of God's grace in our life to keep us running the race with full force. God uses His threatenings of His Word to drive His people forward. In other words, when we feel the full weight of the fury of God's fire, it pushes us forward. But there's a second thing here that I I think is to recognize the privilege of those that are truly united to Christ. Notice how the text ends. It says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. But throughout the whole book of Hebrews, we've been reminded of this promise of the new covenant, that those that are in the new covenant may actually approach God with boldness, with confidence. They may come to the throne of grace and receive mercy in their time of help. That we're not fearful of God, but actually we go to Him as children, and He welcomes us, and He cares for us. He takes our anxieties, and He provides for us. And why? Because that holy God that demands a perfection of holy has made those perfect that are in Christ. He has perfected them in Christ. He has given them the righteousness of Christ. It is not theirs. It is the righteousness of Christ. And as God would smile upon His Son, He smiles upon those that are in the Son. We have been made holy by Christ. We've been made righteous by Christ. So I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Christ? Have you received Christ? Are you resting in Christ? Have you trusted in Him? By God's grace, are you accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, for eternal life? You know, if you are on the fence, let God's Word give us a final thought about this. If we've heard the knowledge of truth, if we've heard the gospel, notice what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. But not the one that has been regenerated. Not the one that has been washed in the blood of Christ. Are you holding on to Christ? If you're holding on to Christ, you hold on to him because he holds on to you. Set your eyes upon him, our merciful Savior, and rest in his grace and his grace alone. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths and glorious gospel of your good grace. That we may be set free from the bondage of sin and be free in Christ. Father, we have heard the weight of the bad news and we rejoice over the good news that Christ rescues a people for himself. Father, I pray that we would would be encouraged by these words and this warning would provoke us forward. I pray that, Father, this text would prepare our hearts for whatever things we may face this coming week knowing that you are gracious to us, that you are kind. I pray that, Father, this text will lead us to rest our eyes upon Christ and him alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.